Today we'll be continuing in Galatians. This is chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, guys, this is Frank Switzer's first week preaching with us, our new lead pastor. Will you welcome him up here? Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I really wasn't planning on the first thing I was going to do in this congregation is tell you to do something, but... I'm going to have to. Uh, Tyler asked me to ask all of you if you could move to the middle because apparently we're kind of running out of uh, seats this morning. So if you could just kind of squeeze in a little bit, that would be really helpful to us. And if you don't like doing that, blame Tyler later. I can give you his email address and everything you need to be able to do that. So. Well, it is a privilege uh, to be here. And... Um, I'm glad that process is over with, and I'm ready to start a new journey together with you guys, and I hope you're uh, ready as well. Um, so no more small talk. Let's just get into it. Let's get to work. Let me pray, and then we'll get started. God, thank you for your word and its truth, and uh, we pray now that as we, uh, as we work our way through it and we unpack it, that uh, you would open our eyes to its truth. Uh, and that you would speak, that you would move me out of the way, and that we would see everything that you have for us. And in the end, uh, we would not only be blessed, but you would be glorified. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one other thing I want to mention. Uh, Jackie and I and Darby, um, and, and Shelby's away at school, but Jackie and I and Darby really have uh, felt tremendously welcomed by this community. And, and we wanted to say that we really appreciate that, and thank you very much for that. So, uh, would you please turn to Galatians chapter 3. And as you do that, what I want to do is I want to review a little bit because it's a, this, is an, this is an important point in the letter. The letter of Galatians is actually, uh, as, as commentators look at it, divided into three areas. And chapters 1 and 2 constitute Paul's foundation for uh, the problem and his argument that he's going to make in the letter. And then chapters 3 and 4, which we begin today with the first nine verses of chapter 3, are very important because these are considered, these two chapters are considered Paul's theological argument or his theological vindication for the position that he is taking in this letter. So it's th this is going to be some, some heavy sledding that we're going to be going through. A and then chapters 5 and 6, which we'll get to in a few weeks, will be the application uh, of everything that Paul has, has taught. Uh, so I want to kind of review and get us up to date. Uh, Paul wrote this letter very early in, in his ministry, most would say, around the year 48, 
uh, to a bunch of churches in this area known as Galatia, uh, which would be modern-day Turkey. And he's writing really to churches that he probably planted, most of them, if not all of them. He's writing like Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby. And uh, I think the editors of the Quest Study Bible have a pretty good idea of what's going on um, in these churches. And here's how they describe the letter to the Galatians. They write this, people who care about nutrition often read labels before buying packaged food. Why? Well, they're on the lookout for additives and ingredients that may be unhealthy or even hazardous. In, similar, in a similar way, the epistle to the Galatians warns against mixing legalism and human works into the simple gospel. It describes artificial spiritual additives. I like that term, artificial spiritual additives to the gospel and their toxic effects. This book offers a clear explanation of what it means to be saved by faith. And the major problem that Paul is dealing with here, the principal concern is how non-Jews are going to be saved uh, into faith. And and what the Judaizers are trying to do is they're trying to mix in and add in some things into the simple gospel, the gospel of grace from Jesus Christ. And, And so Paul is pushing back against that. In fact, He's a little agitated about this. And, of course, the biggest uh, example that we have of this is that uh, the Judaizers are requiring that the Gentiles would be circumcised. But not only that, that they would follow all of the tenets of the law of Moses. In other words, they need to be Jewish as well as Christian if they are going to actually be uh, Christians. And and Paul gets a hold of this, and he is peeved about this because this is polluting and corrupting the simple gospel. And I've always found it amusing, I'll probably talk about this more uh, during subsequent weeks, but I've always found it amusing how many commentators uh, feel like they need to come to the rescue of Paul's reputation when it comes to the book of of Galatians because of his attitude in this book. He is angry. Uh, One commentator says it this way, uh, Paul wrote the letter in agitation, okay? Well, that makes it sound like, uh, that's a euphemism. It, It makes it sound like he's just a little bit disturbed. No, he was angry. I mean, listen to the words he uses. He uses words like astonished and accursed. He, two times in chapter one, he says, I wish that these false gospelers would be accursed. Literally, I wish they would go to hell. And he uses words like condemned. and, And he talks about when he was with Peter, he opposed Peter to his face. This is aggressive, angry language. Uh, He uses the word hypocrisy. Today he uses, in the passage, he uses the words foolish and bewitched. Again, very strong words. And then in chapter 5, he's actually going to say, in the middle of chapter 5, I wish these Judaizers would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. He's a little hot under the collar, so I think we need to just call it like it is. I have a a, a good friend who's a psychotherapist, and, and... He understands anger, and he deals with anger issues in people, and and he says, obviously, uh, the way we manifest anger can be a very destructive thing. But he also says that anger is good uh, if if we use it correctly. He he says that uh, God gave us this emotion of anger for a purpose, and he says one of the useful things about anger is that it can tell us what is truly important. If when we get angry, we would step back and and think about what it is that's making us angry, we'll understand more about what's important to us. Or if somebody else gets angry, we can step back and and try to discern from their anger what's important to them, and that can help with communication. Well, well, think about Paul's anger. Uh, Paul is not angry about something little. 
He is angry about something very important. He's angry about the corruption and the perversion of the simple gospel. He is not crying over spilt milk. He's not whining about a hangnail. This is really important, and he takes it seriously. Uh, He is righteously indignant. Now, I've used that term many times to justify my anger, okay? I'll overreact, and I'll get anger, and I'll say, well, I'm righteously indignant, and that somehow lets me off the hook. Well, let me explain to you that, that, that in Galatians, we have the gold standard for true righteous indignation. If you will, this is righteous, righteous indignation in this letter. And so far in this letter, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, we've had a wonderful description of the gospel that Jesus gave his life in order to deliver us or rescue us from this present evil age. We've had Paul's description of the problem, that, that, that it is a false gospel that is not even a gospel at all, and, and he's laying the foundation for refuting that. We've also had Paul's autobiography and resume for his apostleship. And this is really important because at one point Paul says, listen, I come to you not uh, being sent by men or from man, but rather I have been sent by God. And, and I want you to hear this juxtaposition of what Paul used to do before God saved him on the road to Damascus. Before God became so, uh, uh, Paul became somebody who was sent by God, he was actually somebody who was commissioned by men, who was sent by men in order to do what? to kill other men, to kill people that were, that were uh, Christians and that were bucking against the, uh, the, 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 the nation of Judah, the, the, the Judaism that he held so dear. And then he was saved, and he became somebody who was sent by God not to kill men anymore, but rather to, to save men. And then we have the throwdown with Peter, uh, sort of uh, in, in the beginning of chapter 2. He describes that he uh, accosts Peter face to face. And I want to make a comment here about that. Um, You and I tend to hold up Bible characters with great esteem. And we should do that. That's good. They made it into the Bible. That's a really cool thing. But one of the things that we have to remember is that they are still just men and women. They are sinful. They are flawed. They've got baggage. They have peccadilloes. They have all kinds of problems that they're dealing with. So whether it's Esther or Ruth or David or or Solomon or Peter or Paul, we need to remember, look what God did through them in spite of all of their sin and all of their faults. And so that should give all of us pause today to ask this question. What is God doing through us? Even though we know that we are flawed and we have our problems, God can still work through us. And if and if you're one of those people who isn't allowing God to work through you yet because, because you feel like you have too much sin or too many faults or too many problems, understand he's going to work through you a- as you work on that relationship, and he can do it right now. Y- you realize that the same Holy Spirit that worked through Peter and that worked through Paul is also the same Holy Spirit who works through all of us today. So we have access to the same power that they did. I understand that your name is not, well, your name might be in the Bible, but it's not representing you, okay? If your name is John, you're in the Bible, but it's not you. But you can still be like a Bible dude and, and allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. And then finally, last week, we got to one of the great verses in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives through me. The life I now live in this body, in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who gave his life for me. That is a magnificent verse. It is a magnificent truth. And it is, again, a restatement of the gospel. And so today what we're looking, looking at, we're going to start the core of Paul's theological argument in uh, uh, verses uh, 1 through 9 of chapter 3. And in these verses, here's the big idea. Essentially what Paul is asking in these verses is this question. Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself? Who are you placing your trust in? Are you going to trust God for your salvation and your sanctification? Or are you going to trust yourself for your salvation and your sanctification? And this is important not only to the Galatians, but it's also important to us because it is so easy even today for us to forget the importance of the simple gospel in our lives. It's so easy to forget the idea that we bring absolutely nothing to the salvation or the sanctification party. It's so easy to believe the enemy's lies. It is so easy to just slide back into the comfort of listening to the world's philosophies and false teaching and, and think that we are going to bring something other than the Holy Spirit in us to this party. And so Paul is really on top of this in these nine verses. And I would also suggest that in these nine verses, Paul demonstrates his thoroughgoing ability to argue a point in the most complete way and the most efficient way. Uh, he starts with these first five or six verses uh, by, if, if you like Aristotle, this is like his pathos area. It, it is, he, is, he is appealing to the affective part of the brain. He's, ex he's appealing to your experience, to your story, to your narrative. And he asks a series of rhetorical questions in order to get his audience actually involved in the conversation, participating without actually speaking, but involved nonetheless so that, th so that they're thinking about what Paul is saying. And then in the last uh, three or four verses, he comes at it with his cognitive best. It's, it's the logos part of the argument where he begins to present evidence and facts and he, and he cites scripture in order to build his argument. It's, it's really a, a, a wonderful way that he argues. And so let's work through these first five verses. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, uh, that word foolish literally, literally translated means unthinking. You are doing this without thinking about it at all. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The word bewitched it, it, it could be translated this way. Who has corrupted your ability to see the truth? Who has covered your eyes so you can no longer see the truth? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Here's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, listen, uh, this, this idea that, that Jesus was was uh, crucified is not a myth. It's not just some story that's going around. In fact, you know and understand that this was a fact. This is a historical fact that he was, he was crucified. You know the fact and you know the effect of the crucifixion and yet you are walking away from it. Why would you do such a thing? Let me ask you only this, Paul writes. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In a letter that's really uh, very dependent in many ways about uh, on the Holy Spirit, this is actually the first appearance of the Holy Spirit in a very significant way, and that's important as we work through this. Again, he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That word perfected means literally, have you, are you achieving your goal, or are you being sanctified now without the Holy Spirit, on your own, through works of the flesh, literally by anything that is unaided by the Holy Spirit. 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? So let's dig into this. Uh, the, the thing I really want to concentrate on in this section are these rhetorical questions. There's, there's a series of rhetorical questions that, Paul's that Paul asks. It's just one right after the other. Boom, 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 boom. And, and what he's doing is he's gaining momentum and he's making point after point after point. Now, what is the significance of a rhetorical question? Here's the uh, definition of what it's supposed to do. A rhetorical question is a literary device where a statement of fact is disguised as a question for the purpose of getting the, in the audience involved in and thinking about the conversation that is going on. In other words, this is not a passive form of lecture or communication. It's a technique where the speaker or the communicator gets the audience to silently yet effectively participate in the conversation so that the audience will more readily own the conclusions of the conversation. In other words, Paul doesn't want to just tell them where they're wrong or tell them what to do. He's asking them these questions so that they will draw the conclusion themselves that they have been wrong and they need to change their path and, and re-embrace the simple gospel. Uh, rhetorical questions are used to build rapport with an audience. They are also used at times, like here, to chide and interrogate audiences. Uh, and, and, and it's a powerful rhetorical tool. A and if you question that, I I'll tell you what, you ought to look at the book of Job, because at the end of the book of Job, even God uses rhetorical questions, a lot of rhetorical questions at the end of the book of Job. Job comes to God, and, and he's kind of shaking his fist at God, and he's saying, God, you have some explaining to do. And God says, well, well, hang on to that thought a minute, Job, because I have some questions first for you. And he says, I want you to answer these questions, but you have to understand that God doesn't want him to literally answer these questions. He wants, he wants the obvious conclusion of what God is trying to get across to come out in his answer. So when God says, where were you when I hung the stars? Where were you when that baby goat was born? Where were you when I created the seas? Where were you when I created the universe? He's not looking for Job to say, well, gosh, I don't, was I playing Little League? Was I, what was I doing? He's not looking for that. He's looking for exactly the response that Job eventually gives, which is, I'm sorry, you have a point. You created this whole thing. I have no business questioning you about this. So this is a, a really powerful uh, rhetorical device. And so what I want to do is, is I want to give you the question and then give you the statement that Paul is actually making by asking the question. And in doing so, I want you to not necessarily think about the Galatians right now, but I want you to think about your own life and your own walk with God and, and your own areas where you struggle with faith and the idea of, of grace, unmerited favor, and apply this stuff to you. So in verse 1, Paul says, Who has bewitched you? Who has corrupted your ability to see the truth? And literally what he's saying is this, you have ignorantly and willingly fallen for something other than Jesus and the gospel. How many of you have ever willingly fallen for something other than Jesus and the simple gospel? It happens all the time, even to those of us who, who believe, because there's this constant pull from the world to pull us away, and from Satan to pull us away from the simple truth of the gospel. And then in verse 2 he says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And here's his statement. 
He says, listen, guys, the Holy Spirit does not respond to your works. Rather, the Holy Spirit invades your life with grace so that you respond to his works. Uh, So many of us have this relationship with God backwards. We believe that we initiate with God and his obligation is to respond to us. But it's just the other way around. God initiates with us and then it is our responsibility to respond to him. And so Paul is making that point by asking this question. He's also saying this. He's saying, listen, you guys have a conversion story in which God worked a miracle in your life and saved you, but you aren't remembering it. You're not telling each other your conversion stories. You're not, you're not reminding yourself and preaching to yourself the gospel every single day and to others in your community. Uh, Scott McKnight, who wrote a commentary on Galatians, uh, really jumps on this, and, and he writes this. The experience of conversion was foundational for Paul's appeal here. Had the Galatians not been converted to the truth of the gospel, Paul would have never written this letter. But conversion is not in vogue right now, and he's talking about the early 21st century when when McKnight writes writes this. Perhaps because of the excesses of the 1950s and 1960s with popular evangelism appealing to superficial conversions, or the backlash to the I've got it and born again movements, or the embarrassing revelations of TV evangelists, or the desire of evangelicals to be intellectually and socially acceptable, we evangelicals are not emphasizing conversion as the only true foundation of a relationship to God. These stories could be strengthening our churches if we would use them. And i got to tell you something. I, I feel like being at Redemption, this is pretty cool. We are right on track with what McKnight is writing here. I would say maybe we're on track a little bit before he, he, he might have written this. Uh, I'll go ahead on behalf of Redemption and, and allow us to take credit of that for that. We are, we are in the process right now at Redemption uh, of putting together something called Redemption Stories. Maybe you've seen some of those already on the website. But we, we, f- we feel it is a tremendously huge core value at Redemption. All of the, all of the uh, uh, Redemption congregations to tell each other our God stories, our conversion stories, and get this into the water and let people know how God is working in our lives. This is incredibly important. All right, the third rhetorical question is in verse 3. Paul writes, having begun by the, f- uh, by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is by far the strongest rhetorical question that is asked here. This is the apex of the mountain of rhetorical questions. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying this to the Galatians, and he's saying it to you and I today as well. He says, so what you're saying is that what God brings to the party isn't enough. You're saying God is so ineffectual in his ability to save and sanctify you that you have to come in and make up the difference. You have to save the day. Well, thank God for you, because without you, God would be lost. Paul is very snarky with this question, I'm telling you. And then verse 4, the fourth rhetorical question. He asks, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Uh, Just like all Christians at one time or another, we're going to suffer for our faith, we're going to encounter resistance or be oppressed because of our faith, and the Galatians had encountered that as well, and so he's addressing that. And essentially what this question is stating is this. Don't allow the persecution you have experienced as a result of being in Christ to be wasted on this legalism garbage. And it's the same thing for you and I. Don't waste your time. Uh, uh, Remember that you're you're being 
uh, resisted and oppressed at times and you're suffering tribulation for a very good reason. It is the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, verse 5, he asks the last question. He asks, does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And here's the statement that Paul makes with that question. He says, God is not boxed in by the law. Rather, it is by his supernatural power, his supernatural grace, and his supernatural glorious will that we have a right relationship with him and rescue from our sin. Understand, this is a lot more effective than just lecturing the Galatians. He's getting them involved in the conversation by asking them these questions and getting them to think about it for themselves. And it should have the same effect on you and me. We, we should... We should read these questions and internalize them and think about them for ourselves and then realize the absurdity of any time that you and I start to chase uh, self-works or self-righteousness as a way to save or sanctify ourselves. Now, I want to go back to verse 3 and further unpack that a little bit because that is the, the, the core of his argument here. He writes, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer to that is yes. They were trying that. And you and I try that all the time too. The tragedy is that you and I try that all the time as well. And that's why it is so important, as many people have said before, that you and I need to be in the discipline of preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, of reminding ourselves of the salvation that we have by grace through faith and that it is nothing that we have done, but it is the work of God in our lives that we have this unmerited favor. But, but see, our flesh just demands and the world demands and Satan demands that, that we all feel like, you know what, we've got to save ourselves. Yes, Jesus is cool and God did this great thing, but we have, we have to be partners in this deal. Okay, God's the general, but we're the limited and we have, we have to bring something to this party. And we all believe that we can save ourselves as well. We live in a culture that teaches us that we can be our, our own saviors, that we do not need God, that we can do this for ourselves. I've been told by people, I don't know if it's true, I've been told by people that the largest section in, in most bookstores is the self-help section. Well, a number of years ago, I had a student at one of the community colleges, and I, and I, was, I, I was developing a relationship with him, and his big thing was the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. A and he used to tell me, I don't know if it's true or not, but he used to tell me all the time, I've read every book in the self-help section, I've read every one of those philosophers. Every time a new book comes in there, I read it. I am all about self-help. I am all about understanding how I can uh, improve myself. He was into this human potential movement and the me market and the, and, and the me gospel. He was all into that. A and one day in a, in a, in a time of real candor, uh, I said to him, you know, I believe that you, maybe you haven't read all of them, but I believe you've read a lot of them because, frankly, you are an expert on yourself. And you're not afraid to let people know about it. And, and could, I just could I just suggest to you that maybe what you need is some help from the outside, and that would be Jesus? See, this guy needed Jesus. This guy needed the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. He needed somebody else who was effective at doing this to come in and actually save him. And, and I want to make a couple of points about this whole idea of self-help and humanism and the human potential movement. Here's the first one. Trying to attain our own salvation is actually a sign of weakness and insecurity, which is exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do with self-salvation, isn't it? 
That's the irony. That's the paradox of trying to save ourselves. It's actually an indication of, of weakness and insecurity. And the second point is this. Part of the power of the self-help, humanism, human potential movement is that it promises acceptance by others. It promises us that we will be accepted by others. And that is a powerful incentive and temptation. But it's also a promise that never delivers. It is a false promise, and therefore it is a false god. It is a false gospel. It's been said that false gods never fail to fail. And this is one of those false gods that is always failing us. And that's one of the reasons, though, why the Galatians fell for it. They wanted to be accepted by the Judaizers. This is one of the reasons. This is one of the temptations. They said, hey, look, we want to be part of the in club. We want to be part of the, the professional religious people. We want to be part of that group over there that seems to know a lot more about what's going on than we do. We want to present ourselves as acceptable to them, so we're willing to go along with their program. But acceptance based on performance is always tenuous and, uh, and fragile because it never ends. We live in a culture of what have you done for me lately? Well, I've spent 30 years doing stuff for you. I know, but what are you doing for me right now? This is the problem with acceptance by performance. Yet through the cross and the resurrection, our acceptance is not based on anything we've done, but it is based on God's character and his love for us. That's an awesome deal. Uh, Edgar Andrews writes this. Our tendency and temptation is to so easily abandon sound doctrine for novelty or excitement, to submit to human ideologies rather than the truth of Christ, to tailor the gospel to please others, to compromise the truth with error for the sake of peace, to abandon the hard work of thinking for oneself and instead follow false shepherds with persuasive personalities. All these mistakes are prevalent as they were in Paul's time. Martin Luther, the reformer, contends that the doctrine of, the justifi uh, of justification by faith was actually attacked and shaken from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. He says this problem goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes? There's nothing new under the sun. Genesis chapter 3 was the very beginning of the self-help movement. Do you realize that? That's when it got started. In 1992, a guy named Vishal Mangalwadi uh, wrote a, a great book called When the New Age Gets Old. And one of the points he makes is that the New Age movement started in, in, in Genesis chapter 3. It started in the Garden of Eden when the two of them thought that they could become God. See, here's one of the biggest problems with the idea of self-salvation or, or saving yourself and sanctifying yourself by works or the law rather than by grace. Here it is. Uh, you all can finish this phrase for me, right? So do it. I, this is the participation time now of the service, okay? So I want you to finish this for me. Nobody's perfect. Very good. That's really good. You guys, are, you Arcadians are really smart, I'm telling you, okay? Well, all of us freely admit that nobody's perfect, that we all have our sins and, and problems and flaws. So think about this logically. As imperfect, sinful, flawed people, our works... Our methods, our ideas are also going to be filled with sin and flaws and issues. They will be imperfect and incomplete. So here's the rational absurdity of salvation by self. It's imperfect people trying to save sinful people with flawed methods and deeds. 
It's imperfect people trying to save sinful people by flawed methods and deeds. And you got to admit, that dog don't hunt. You got to come to Jesus. And for Christians, for those who have experienced conversion and understand what grace and faith really are, Paul is addressing you, especially in verse 3. You have regressed in your thinking. He's saying, how could you who have experienced the gospel of the grace of Christ allow your, this perversion of that grace? How could you allow it to be corrupted? Don't you know, you foolish Galatians, that if you try to earn your justification and earn your sanctification by working for it, that you, in fact, have done nothing? Because through the cross, it's already been done for us. There's nothing for you or I to do. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, those sweet, three beautiful words, he said, it is finished. End of story. Put a period there. There's nothing that you and I can do. And I know right now some of you are thinking, this is the sixth week of this. How much more can you hammer on this point? Every week. We're going to do it every week because that's what the book and the letter of Galatians is all about. It's about hammering on this point. Well, let's move now to the second section. We've looked at the uh, affective pathos section of Paul's argument. Now we move to the logos, the cognitive section of his argument. Verses 6 through 9, Paul writes, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, it's important to understand here that what Paul is talking about is not DNA sons. He's talking about something that actually is much deeper and stronger than DNA. He's talking about the faith community. You are sons of Abraham in Christ, in his progeny, because it is out of Abraham that Jesus came. And the scripture foreseeing would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So you can see here now how Paul has gone from this affective argument where he is appealing to the experience of the Galatians. Now he's moved to this cognitive argument where he's appealing to evidence and facts, and he's appealing to Scripture. He's citing Genesis, the story of Abraham. He's using Scripture as evidence for his argument. Paul would have made an excellent lawyer because he's got both sides of the argument down. He knows how to hit you logically, and he knows how to hit you affectively. And then verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Um, Abraham is the man of faith, not the man of circumcision. Right? And that's what it says right there. The man of faith, not the man of circumcision. Um, in Deuteronomy, you should, don't necessarily turn there, just write this, uh, these couple of verses down. I want to hit you with this because this is really interesting. Even in Deuteronomy where, where God is laying out the law, uh, he understands, God understands and, and wants to teach that it's not about your outward appearance that makes you acceptable to God. Uh, nothing can make you acceptable to God. And what God is really interested in is what's going on inside of you. And so in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, it says this, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Circumcise your heart. Circumcise the core of your being. 
Circumcise who you are on the inside, and then everything on the outside will begin to, uh, to um, be, be uh, 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 changed and, and, and used for the better. See, what God is saying here is, is that you can do works of the law, you can be a, quote, good person, but you can still be unconverted. You can still be not transformed. You, you can still be somebody who has no compassion. You can still be somebody who is stubborn. You can do all of this external stuff and still not be the person hoping that you can be through his grace and through his faith. See, see here's what I think we need to remember. The call of Christ on you and me is not a call for us to submit our behavior to God, but rather it's a call for us to submit our will to God. He wants us to submit our trust to Him. He wants us to, to submit our volition to Him. He wants us to circumcise our hearts, not anything else. He wants us to change who we are from the inside out. A and then if we submit our will, our volition, and our trust to him, then our behavior will begin to change and we won't have to submit our behavior to him. It'll change automatically as we are transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Again, uh, later on in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, God says something very similar as well. He writes this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. You see that? He says, listen, you, you need to be changed by God changing your heart from the inside out and then you will be able to live. Jesus said, I came to give you life that you may have it abundantly, but the only way you can have that life is to be in Christ, as Paul says. And then there's another passage in the New Testament that, that just solidifies this idea. It's Romans chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumci circumcised by faith, and he will justify the uncircumcised by faith as well. And so you go back to and look at verse 7 in, in Galatians chapter 3. And look at, now look at that closely. If you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, look at that closely. Here's what verse 7 in chapter 3 says. Paul writes, And Abraham was circumcised, and therefore righteousness was accredited to him. Right? Is that what it says? Abraham was circumcised. No, 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 no. What Paul is doing there is he is, he is citing, he is quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, the story of Abraham, the, the, the focal point of the story of Abraham, where it says that Abraham believed the Lord. Literally, Abraham trusted. He put his faith in the Lord, and then he, the Lord, counted it to Abraham as righteousness. So Paul argues, we are not rescued or sanctified by anything that denies or excludes Jesus or is even Jesus plus. You know, there are those, those formulas where it's, yes, Jesus, but we bring something else. Something else has to be done. Jesus plus. And, and Paul is arguing that is not how it is. By the way, isn't it funny how circumcision was such a big deal for these Judaizers? It was, it was really, uh, of, of all the parts of the law, this was the, part that they want, that, this was the hill they wanted to die on, was the circumcising 
uh, of, of, um, of Gentiles. Yet in their own scriptures, according to their own uh, Mosaic law, I- in Genesis, the story of Abraham, Abraham gets circumcised in chapter 17. It's in, verse, in, it's in chapter 15 that Abraham has faith and is credited with righteousness. So this faith thing happens well before the circumcision thing. And then I would take it even a step further. This is really interesting to me. When God was making all of these promises to Abraham that Paul cites in this, in this passage, when, 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 when God was making those promises, it was Genesis chapter 12. Do you understand that he made, God made these promises to Abraham before Abraham even had the faith? When I first understood that, I, began to, I, I came to Christ when I was 27 years old. God saved me when I was, and, and I, I was never in church, nothing. He saved me when I was 27. And, and when I began to understand that God was working in Abraham's life well before Abraham ever had faith, I began to look back on my own life and I began to realize there were times when God was working in my life even though I had no idea who he was. I would encourage you to do the same thing. Look back on your life. It's a tremendous strengthener of faith to understand and begin to interpret other events of your life through that that window, through that filter, that God was actually working in your life before he even saved you. It, It is an amazing amazing thing. Again, this is Paul at his logical best. Paul is arguing from the evidence in the scripture. Here you go. Paul is doing a term paper and he's citing God. His little footnote says, see God. Okay? That's, that's a strong term paper. A- and then let's, uh, let's kind of wrap up by talking about Abraham and his relationship to the Gentiles because Paul hammers on that as well. You know, the early church, if you read in, in Acts and you read Galatians and you read some of the other letters, the early church got a lot of pushback when they started to include Gentiles into the church, into the Christian faith, because uh, early on, the Christian faith was really just a sect of Judaism. It was seen that way, anyway. A- and so um, the, the Judaizers, then the professional religious people, uh, they were really pushing back on this idea that Gentiles could just walk in uh, by faith. And, and one of the great stories about this is, of course, in Acts chapter, uh, chapters 10 and 11, where, where Peter is going to talk to Cornelius, who is a non-Jew, he's a Gentile, and, and, and before that happens, he has that whole sheet dream where the Brazilian barbecue comes down and God pronounces everything clean. Remember that? Okay? And, and, and that's an exciting moment, okay? But, but still, there was pushback. A- and then imagine... Uh, the, uh, and, you, we, and we don't even have to imagine. We know the pushback that Paul used to get on this as well. He's getting it, he's getting it right here. Paul got tremendous pushback. A- and what's interesting is that when Paul was called to his ministry by Christ on the Damascus Road, he was called to do two things. He was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and he was called to suffer. He was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, people who were anathema, to Jews, people who, would, who, who Paul would look at and say, I really don't want to go and be a part of them. I don't want to tell them about God. I don't want to tell them about how they can just be saved by faith. He's saying, you have to go to these people you don't even like and minister to them, and oh, by the way, you're going to suffer for it. How many of you want to sign up for that ministry right now? 
just spending all your time with people you don't like and suffering for it. Anybody? Come on, raise your hand. I know there's some out some of you pr- crazy people are out here. I, I want to sign up for that ministry. But this is part of the pushback. Paul suffered for a long time for this. Yet Paul rightly argues that this started at the time of Abraham. This idea of including the Gentiles started in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham. Paul is saying, listen, build a bridge and get over it. This Gentile thing goes way back to Abraham. You have to accept this. And then verse 8, Paul says, And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. See, God made two promises to Abraham. One was physical and one was spiritual. The physical promise that God made Abraham was that you were going to be a great nation. There's going to be a lot of you. The second promise, though, he made is even more significant. He said, through you, Abraham, through your progeny will come the Messiah. And that Messiah is going to be able to save people from all nations, from all tribes. And so this is the... This is the crux of Paul's argument. The crux of his argument it is, is that it is by grace through faith that people are saved. Not through works, not through deeds, not through anything that you can do. And it is by grace and faith that you and I are sanctified, that we live our lives with Christ and with God. It, it, it is through grace and faith. And Paul just hammers this. It's not DNA. It's not the law. It is faith. And so these nine verses for Paul are critical for the Galatians to be able to understand this gospel that they were so easily abandoning. And you need to understand, it's critical for us to understand it as well. We need to grab hold of these nine verses, get them into the core of our thinking and our feeling and our believing, and it will help us preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Let me pray, and the uh, team will come up to uh, help lead us through some more uh, worship. Gracious and holy God, we are thankful to you that that you confront us with these truths. But you do it in a loving way that reminds us of, of who you are and who we are. And that it is because of your love and your character that we are blessed with this unmerited favor. This, this grace that gives us a life with you. That gives us this abundant life that Jesus talked about. And so God, I pray that you would give us the courage to be able to remember that. And to live it out, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?